0: Shalom, and welcome back to Scripture Central. I'm Lynn Hilton Wilson, part of the Come Follow Me team to talk about 2 Corinthians chapters 1 through 6 today. I feel like 1 Corinthians is a scolding letter. We've lost some letters in between, but we now have a letter that's main theme is comfort. The word comfort is repeated over and over again. Sometimes in English, you get different words for it, but the Greek word is the same. He's trying to put his arm around the saints. They've been chastised, they've repented, and he hears that they've accepted his harshness and he's thrilled and he's telling them that he's coming. He talks about sealing in this letter. He talks about this need for suffering, how it produces perseverance. He talks about the need to be ambassadors of Christ. Just as a review, In the book of Acts, 2 Corinthians falls a little bit later. It's not too far after 1 Corinthians. It's still a chapter 19 to 21 period of time. We're told in the book of Acts that Paul leaves his three-year mission in Ephesus and goes up north. He wants to be able to sail over to Corinth to visit the saints there, but it's already in the fall time. It's too late. So he goes by land and he goes northern Turkey down into Macedonia, down into southern Greece. Where Corinth is. And as he's walking on the way, he's hoping to find his fellow missionaries with news from Corinth. And sure enough, once he gets over in Macedonia, he meets up with one of the people who are carrying the letters. They're able to communicate. He quickly writes out this letter, gives it to them. They rush it down to Corinth to tell the saints he's coming and make the preparations for his next visit. He's going to spend the entire winter with them, and he wanted them to know all about that. Second Corinthians chapter one, verse one begins, Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ by the will of God and Timothy, our brother unto the church of God, which is in Corinth and all Ikea. So these letters were to be shared with the different branches of Christianity. This is one of five letters that Timothy is a co-author in or a co-sender of the letter. Do you remember Timothy was this beloved adopted son to Paul? He was like a son because he joined him in the ministry, but he converted to Christianity between Paul's missions. And Paul met him and found that not only was he a convert, this young man, but also his mother and his grandmother, they were all Jewish converts. They were married to Greeks, so they had these Greek names. But um, these two women studied the scriptures, had great faith, shared them with their son, and he becomes one of Paul's greatest companions and builder of the kingdom of God. In verse three, we start reading, the father of mercies who comforteth us in all our tribulation. I love the title for our God as the father of mercy. It applies to both the father and the son. I don't know exactly who he's referring to, but he's talking about The gift of comfort. Paul uses this word for comfort with the same word that he uses for the spirit. It's this Pericles. And he uses it eight times in these next few verses. And in fact, if you look over all of his epistles, you find it used 30 times. And the Greek word means to call to or for, to exhort or to encourage as well as to comfort. Which I think is interesting that once you're comforted, you have the responsibility to go and encourage and comfort others, or to call them or to exhort them, that exhorting and teaching is another form of healing and comfort. In verses 8 to 9, we continue reading in the NIV about something that we don't know exactly what it means. We do not want you to be uninformed, brothers and sisters, about the troubles we experienced in the province of Asia, that we might not rely on ourselves but on God. He goes on to talk about this near death sentence. Now, is that when we read about in the book of Acts, chapter 19, about the great is the temple of Diana and they were trying to kill him? Or is he referring to something different in the book of Philippians, chapter one, verse 19, he refers also to this death sentence in Asia. So I'm not exactly sure what it is, but I am touched by his response. He says, you help us by your prayers. That's verse 11 in the NIV. He's telling the saints, We've gone through horrific trials, and your prayers have sustained us, and I am one who also has felt that in my life. Chapter 21, verse 22 continues on in the NIV. Now is God who makes both us and you stand firm in Christ. He anointed us and set his seal of his ownership on us and put his spirit in our hearts. This is a powerful gift of the spirit. And remember that the seal of Christ is referred to in the restoration as the Holy Spirit of promise it's a It's a gift of the Spirit that shows when things are done under proper authority, when a person's heart is correct, and the ordinances can be ratified and that same sealing power of the gift of the Holy Spirit is mentioned in the New Testament once. And mentioned six times in the Doctrine and Covenants. And there, the majority of the times, it's referring to the permanent sealing that comes when one is sealed to exaltation. Not the conditional sealing that we receive when we are still trying to take upon the name of the Lord. We are willing to take upon the name of the Lord. But one that has been finished, it's sealed also by the Holy Spirit of promise. And he's referring here to this seal of he who anointed us. Remember the word Christ, means anointed in Greek or in English, but in Hebrew, it's Mashiach, Messiah. So he's talking about our Savior will anoint us to become his permanently if we can um, remain faithful. Elder McConkie taught about sealing. He said, to seal is to ratify, to justify, or to approve. Thus, an act which is sealed by the Holy Spirit of promise is one which is ratified by the Holy Ghost. It is one which is approved by the Lord. And the person who has taken the obligation upon himself is justified by the Spirit. Now, last week, I had mentioned the idea that letters were sealed with a stamp. And I've got two pictures on my slides to show examples of ancient seals, even in stone boxes with metal over them. You know, seals were very important. And they even used the word seal when they wanted to seal a tomb and they put a guard on it. know, this is a very important message to say it's going to be secure. And that's exactly how we need to think of our covenants. That we hope the Holy Spirit of promise will secure us and tether us to the Lord and that our hearts will remain humble and meek so that we can receive those blessings permanently someday. Second Peter also talks about this in chapter 1 verse 10 when he refers to your calling and election made sure. I believe these are all referring to the same thing. God's seal was also restored to Joseph in the restoration. 2 Corinthians chapter 2, verses 1 through 4, continues on with Paul's message. I made up my mind not to make another painful visit to you, for through many tears I wrote you, and then he skips ahead a little bit, not to grieve you, but to let you know how much I love you. So he's explaining, I had to give you that very harsh letter, that stern message, because I love you. I love you enough that I wanted to help you get back on the path to correct these misunderstandings in so many ways. You're not going to be able to grow spiritually closer to our Savior unless you do it his way. And so he said, I I wrote these letters with tears falling from my eyes because I love you. And I told myself, I'm not going to come again unless you've repented. And then he says in verse 5, you are forgiven and those whom you forgive, I will also trust your judgment. I will forgive them as well. And I am thrilled with the changes that have been made. It sounds like the Corinthians were very humble and very penitent. And you know, I feel the same way as Paul is writing here, when I repent, I feel like it's such a gift from God. I feel so loved when I feel forgiveness. I feel like repentance is like a a spiritual spa. I feel rejuvenated afterward. I feel changed and motivated to do better. And I feel like Paul is trying to describe this to the saints, you know, I only chastised you because I love you and I wanted you to feel God's love around you. And obviously, they repented and are able to feel that again. Chapter 2, verse 9 to 10 in the BSB reads My purpose in writing to you was to see if you would stand the test and be obedient in everything. Then he skips down a little bit. I have forgiven it in the presence of Christ for your sakes. In the King James Version, it says, I had confidence in all of you that you would change. And that, to me, is the confidence that the Lord had in all of us when he suffered for our sins. He knew we could change. He knew He had the power to do it. In fact, he gives us that power and that strength to do it. Continuing on in verse 14, we read in the New King James Version, thanks be to God who always leads us in triumph to Christ. Now, the King James Version says, He always causes us to triumph in Christ. But I mentioned before, many of the King James translators have a Calvinistic theology, and they believe that God forces us to do things, that there is no agency. We are either saved or we're damned depending on God's choices, not depending on our actions. And so this reformed theology that came out of the Westminster Confession infiltrates through the King James translation. So, I appreciate the New King James translation changing that cause to lead. He leads us to triumph in Christ in our every place, and we can become conquerors. No matter how besought we are in pain and weaknesses and our sins, we can become conquerors in Christ. Paul is our witness, our example. No matter how awful he is, he became a great leader for good. I am so grateful for the gift of repentance and forgiveness and comfort from our Savior and the Spirit. Verse 15 is very similar to things that Paul writes later in the book of Philippians, and we also can find them in Ephesians chapter 5, verse 2. He says, for we are unto God a sweet savor of Christ. He goes back to the Old Testament image of the altar at the temple. Remember, the altar had the animals placed on it vicariously. The priests would lay their hands on them and they would receive the sin offerings or whatever the offering was that was the burnt offering so that the um, person who was repentant or changing or being cleansed would um, then vicariously be carried by this animal, of course, who we believe is the Lamb of God of Jesus Christ. But the burning of that offering is often referred to as a sweet fragrance. And so Paul is now using that imagery from the temple, this sweet fragrance, and applying it to repentance. 47 times in the Old Testament, they refer to this animal sacrifice with sweet fragrance, starting with Genesis and Exodus. You just find a whole bunch of them. But in the New Testament, we see our Savior referring to it. And he says, I will have mercy and not sacrifice in Matthew nine eleven, And then in John's gospel, chapter 10, verse 15, the Lord says, I sacrifice my life for my sheep. So we start getting the message that it's not the vicarious animal, it's our Savior. In Romans, Paul has written earlier in chapter 12, verse 1, offer your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. And then later we'll read in the book of Philippians chapter 2, if I be offered upon the sacrifice and the service of your faith, I joy and rejoice with all of you. And then we read in the Book of Mormon, very similarly, probably even better known, ye shall offer a sacrifice unto me of a broken heart and a contrite spirit. So the sweet fragrance is no longer the burning flesh, the meat offering. It is now the condition of our heart, the condition of our soul. If we are meek and humble and faithful, and if the spirit has been able to cleanse us, then it is a sweet fragrance. Forgiveness is sweetness. Um, because every time I feel forgiven, I feel the Lord's love. It is a wonderful way to feel Christ's love. In Second Corinthians chapter 3, he addresses another challenge that was made. I guess one of his enemies said, where's his letter of recommendation? Is this, is he really an apostle? Which is really quite offensive to Paul. And so in Second Corinthians chapter 3, verses 1 to 3, he writes, this is the ESV translation. Do we need letters of recommendation to you or from you? you yourselves are our letter of recommendation, written on our hearts. Then he skips down a little bit. You are a letter from Christ, delivered by us, written not with ink, but in the spirit. In the King James, it says, not with his stone tablets, you know, like Moses's stone tablets, but on the fleshy parts of our hearts, not on the tables. He continues to address this issue that people are attacking him and they're being attacked and 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 he's trying to build them up and comfort them and so in verse 5 we continue reading in the MIV that our competence comes from God. Now in King James it says our sufficiency comes for God because of this mentality that God is enough and it's sufficiency but that is not our theology. I really appreciate other translations. I also like the NASB. It says Our adequacy comes from God. We become adequate only when we do things with God. And if you remember back into Isaiah, he refers to these same things and he said, it is God who will enthrone us and enrobe us and and bring us into the kingdoms of heaven. The next section is chapter three, verses seven through 18. And he talks about the glory of the new covenant. And in verse 13 to 14, we read, we are not like Moses, who had to put a veil over his face to keep the Israelites from gazing. Do you remember that time when Moses was up in Sinai and he came down and his face was so shiny that they had to put a veil over him? And so artists oftentimes make light come out of his head and sometimes it looks like horns, but really it's just supposed to be the fact that he's so shiny because he's been in the presence of God. So Paul says, I don't want you to put a veil on your face like Moses did. He continues on, the same veil remains at the reading of the old covenant, but it has not been lifted because only in Christ can it be removed. He's saying, don't veil yourself. We want the light of Christ to shine forth. And unless you have the light of Christ, you are veiled. You know, if you're just going by the old law, you're still hidden. And the word for veil is also the word for hidden in Greek. They, they're interchangeable. Moving on now to 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verses 1 through 7, he starts talking about our bodies. He's calling them divine treasures. And he's asking us, to, in King James, it refers to the earthly vessels, but he's talking about our bodies. And in verse one of chapter four in the NIV, it reads, since through God's mercy, we have this ministry, do not lose heart. And he's saying, we've got the ministry. We've got the ability to take the sacrament every week and to repent and to change. So strengthen your heart. And remember, in the ancient world, your heart is your mind. It's the way you think. As a man thinketh in his heart, so is he, quoting the Old Testament. He then goes on and uses this word veiled again in chapter 4, verse 3. But if our gospel be hid, and in the NIV it says veiled, it is hid to them that are lost. He says, if you're not feeling the Spirit, it's, it's because you're not in the right place. You've got to come unto Christ. You've got to repent. You've got to be humble and meek and live the teachings of Christ in order to feel the Spirit of Christ. If you're not feeling the Spirit, start on your knees and keep seeking and keep trying because it still works. To me, it's like electricity. Just because a light bulb doesn't work doesn't mean that electricity doesn't work. You need to change your light bulb. And sometimes in our lives, if we're not feeling the Spirit, we need to do what's required to feel it again. There are times when the Lord allows us to walk by faith. I mean, obviously, if if Job didn't feel the Spirit, and if Joseph Smith in Liberty Jail didn't feel guidance, even our Savior didn't feel guidance at times. We all need to be able to walk by faith, but our Savior has promised us that when that period of the trial is over, He will pour out His Spirit on us, and we will feel His love again. Chapter 4, verse 4 gives a new title for Satan says, the God of this world hath blinded our minds. Now, do you remember back in the Gospel of John, he called Satan the prince of this world. And here we have the God of this world. Both of those are small g and small p. And I'm thinking, is how in the world do we ever call this satanic influence in our lives a God or a prince? Well, it's because he is the usurper. He is constantly trying to take over Christ's role from the Garden of Eden all the way through. He is trying to destroy God's plan and usurp the Savior's role. Chapter four, verse five in the ISV reads, we do not preach ourselves, but rather Jesus, the Messiah, our Lord, and our souls are merely your servants for Jesus' sake. He doesn't say I'm just Jesus' servant. He says, I'm your servant. You know, I feel like that's our, that's our church calling. That's our responsibility as Christian disciples. We are to serve one another. And as the Lord has loved us, we need to turn and serve others. And I love the image of a waiter or a servant waiting on us, doing every bidding that the Spirit commands. And I believe that the Spirit wants to command us more often. If we can respond, I am ready to learn and teach me. And who can I serve? Those prayers are usually answered. In 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 6, he now moves on to talk about the creation, and it's very similar to Genesis chapter 1, verse 3, but I'll read to you from the NIV in 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 6. For God, who said, let light shine out of darkness, made his light shine in our hearts and displayed in the face of Christ. Paul has seen the face of Christ at least twice, according to the visions that are recorded in the book of Acts, those seven visions that he had. He knows what that looked like. And he believes that Jehovah, the creator, is Jesus of Nazareth. It's a beautiful connection there between those Old Testament and New Testament, making a bridge. Paul is constantly bridging the Old Covenant and the New Covenant. In verse 7, I want to read from the CEV translation. We are like clay jars in which the treasure is stored. The real power comes from God and not from us. We're just the jar. He who is doing the molding and the shaping. You know, Paul says, I'm nothing. You know, I may be an apostle, I may be a missionary, but I only work because God's hands are molding me and shaping me. All credit gets to our savior. Paul now changes to a new topic. And in chapter four, verses eight through 12, he talks about the need for suffering to produce perseverance. Even though Paul goes through his list of all the sufferings he's gone through, I hope you can find a way to apply these verses in your own life. Because I do believe all of us, part of earth life is to have the thorns and the thistles. I mean, that was promised in the Garden of Eden. We've got to go through the pain of the experience. And as we do so, I hope we can follow Paul's advice here that this suffering can become a sanctification, that it become enduring, And it becomes drawing on the powers of heaven. Anything that takes us to our knees can be good if we use it to humbly call upon God. In verse 8, he says, we are perplexed, but not in despair. And then he gives four different examples where life has not gone the way that they thought. But he doesn't want to despair because he can trust in God. So if you didn't get the job or you didn't get the grade or you didn't get the child or you didn't get the spouse or you didn't get whatever you thought was important, trust in God's plan and just recite this beautiful verse from 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 8. I like the ISV of this verse as well. It reads, we're troubled, but not crushed, frustrated, but not in despair. You know, So when our mind feels like we're missing part of the puzzle here and we're not seeing the picture in its entirety... I hope we can trust that Jesus has those pieces of the puzzle, and he will be able to place them back in place. And so, though right now we can't see the whole picture and we don't understand it, our Savior has those pieces, and we are walking by faith to draw unto him. It's really very applicable to our day and age, I feel. 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 13 to 18 talks about this need of being sustained by heaven. And it's not just heaven, it's the hope from heaven. And he returns to this theme of resurrection. And last week, we talked about 1 Corinthians chapter um, 15. It's probably the strongest chapter of all on resurrection. But Paul never leaves the resurrection very far behind. It's one of his major themes. And we get it here again with his beautiful witness. Chapter 4, verse 14. I'll read to you from the NIV. We know that one who raised the Lord Jesus Christ from the dead will raise us, with Jesus and present us with you and himself. And then he goes on and talks about his thanksgiving. Verse 15 says, the thanksgiving is going to overflow and he rejoices in the day that is coming. You know, earth life was so hard in the ancient world. You're always in pain. You're always sick. Communication was challenging. Everything about the ancient world was difficult and they looked forward to the next life when they could receive rest in the Lord. Verse 16 reads in the NIV, We do not lose heart, though outwardly we are wasting away, yet inwardly we are being renewed day by day. This verse reminded me of those combined two years that I was on chemotherapy. And though my body was wasting away on the inside, I felt such empowerment from the prayers of many, many. And I felt strengthened and purified and even healthier on the inside than I had ever felt before there's something good that comes out of our trials. I'm grateful. I have gone through some of mine because I hope I am a better disciple of Jesus Christ for going through them. Verse 18 talks about this as well. In the NIV, it reads, so we fix our eyes not on what is seen, but on what is unseen or eternal. Not only did Paul need that vision, but we have to keep an eternal perspective. If we just look at life through our own generation, everything looks crazy. We have got to look at it from a galactic perspective. Step back and realize the importance of things like the law of chastity and family is from an eternal perspective, and then it helps. In chapter 5 of Second Corinthians, he starts out in verse 1, we know that our earthly house is this tabernacle. We're dissolved. But we have a building of God, a house not made with hands, eternal in nature of heavens. This house that's corruptible is going to fall apart. The tabernacle is another word for a tent or house. um, But we know that there will be another one that's going to come in strength and beauty that's going to last immortally. I also like to look at this verse, not only about the eternal perspective, but about our physical bodies. And then in chapter five, verse two, I want to read from the NIV. Meanwhile, we groan, longing to be clothed instead with our heavenly dwelling. So we say we don't want these earthly vessels. We want a resurrected body. And you remember later, Paul says, I've got a thorn in the flesh, and I have prayed so many times for healing, and it is not being healed. I have got a real physical challenge here. Um, And he's longing to have his resurrected body, to be clothed in his resurrected body. Um, And remember, this is significant because the word clothing is also similar to the word for endued or endowed. And Paul also uses this motif of clothing throughout the next several verses. It's not just clothing our body. He's talking about our spiritual clothing. And I believe, once again, he goes back to the ordinances and he's talking about being clothed in the garments of our Savior, being the robes of righteousness, as they're called in the scriptures. He continues talking about these challenges that are hard in our lives. And in verse three, he says, We know that they help us develop endurance. That's the NLT translation, but Peter talks about it. And the book of James, they talk about these things. You know, life is hard and they're here to help us. Chapter five, verse three really applies to our day and age, too. Many people are dealing with horrific challenges of abuse and pain and lowliness and disabilities and misunderstandings. And it may feel like pushing a stone up the hill. But if we can remain faithful to our Savior and our covenants, I believe with all my heart that he will help us push that rock out of our way and that we will find peace again in the future. Verse 5, and the same theme continues on, that God, skipping ahead a little bit, this is the NIV translation, has given us the Spirit as a deposit guaranteeing what is to come. Now, in the BSB, they don't say deposit. They say, God has given us a pledge of what's to come. And the Spirit is letting us know how wonderful it's going to be to be with God. And so the Spirit is encouraging us. To me, I feel like it's this magnetic pull that the Spirit is letting us go. But I also want to read this verse in the King James, because it says, God hath given us unto us the earnest of the Spirit. Now, this means something different. Instead of the guarantee or the promise, the earnest of the Spirit is also another phrase for the Holy Spirit of promise that I referenced earlier, mentioned in Ephesians as well, Ephesians chapter 1, verse 13. But this Holy Spirit of promise is a biblical phrase that Joseph Smith felt inspired to elaborate on. And in six different times in the Doctrine and Covenants, we have references to what this means. This is a very beautiful doctrine that the Spirit of God will be able to identify if we are being honest, and if our ordinances are done with pure authority, and if we have maintained and kept our covenants, the Holy Spirit of promise can ratify our ordinances and validate the promises that are um, going to come through the grace of Christ and his atoning sacrifice. It's a beautiful doctrine, this earnest of the Spirit, or the Holy Spirit of promise. Moving on to verse 6, again in the ESV, it reads, We are always of good courage. Now, I just had to chuckle because Paul has just told us he was sobbing his eyes out when he was writing this letter. But even sometimes in our mourning and in our sorrow, we can have the underlying faith and courage that comes from knowing that Jesus is the Christ. And I love the KJV's word also, we can have confidence. Continuing on, though, in the ESV, we know that while we are at home in the body, We are away from our Lord. And he's talking about walking by faith. And for the next three verses, chapter 5, verse 7 through 10, he talks about the need to walk by faith. Another one of Paul's themes that is brought up in almost every epistle. The need to grow our faith. The need to be strengthened so that we can become empowered by the Spirit. Chapter 5, verse 10 in the BSB reads, For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, that each one may receive his due for the things done in the body, whether good or bad." And this becomes our great hope, is that the judgment will be just, and that those people who have been wronged will be made right. Joseph Smith spoke on this as well in a sermon in Nauvoo that was published also in the Times and Seasons in 1842. He's talking about the Savior and he said, "'He holds up the reins of judgment in his hands. "'He is a wise lawgiver and will judge all men, not according to the narrow, contracted notions of men, but according to the deeds done in the body, whether they be good or evil, but according to which they have. Those who have lived without the law will be judged without the law, and those that have the law will be judged by the law. We need not doubt the wisdom and intelligence of the great Jehovah. So that lays a pretty heavy responsibility on those of us that have the law, because we will be expected to be judged from that. Luckily, though, we have the Spirit. We have the cleansing power, and we can keep trying day by day, hour by hour. Paul then moves ahead to a message of reconciliation. In 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verses 11 through 21, he spends a lot of time, 10 verses, talking about this need for reconciliation. In the BLB, it reads in verse 11, Knowing the fear of the Lord, we persuade men, and we have been made manifest to God, and I hope— to have been made manifest in your conscience also. Now, in the KJV, it says the terror of the Lord. So I chose to use a different one, but the CEV also uses the respect of the Lord. So remember the word fear of the Lord or the terror of the Lord is referring to our reverence for our Savior. They're they're different words. They saw things differently, but we just got to use an autocorrect on that one. We can trust the Lord, not fear verse 13 has a lot of Joseph Smith translations. It reads four, and then he adds, we bear record that we are not beside ourselves. So the Corinthians have said, I think Paul's beside himself. And he adds in here in the Joseph Smith translation, for whether we glory, and then in the King James going back, it is to God, or whether we be sober, it is for your sakes. And he again, changes the word sakes for cause there. In verse 14, he goes back to this idea of Christ compelling us. The NIV reads, Christ's love compels us. And I use that image of this magnetic pull that when we feel the Savior's love, we just want to be with him. In the King James, it says, Christ constraineth us. But I don't know if that completely captures it. The ESV is also not quite right, I think, because it says Christ controls us. Those words, I don't feel, are communicating what the Greek really says. It is that the love of Christ draws us to him, I believe. Chapter 5, verses 16 to 17, we also find some more Joseph Smith translations that I think are really helpful. He says, wherefore, henceforth, live we no more, that's the addition, and it goes back to King James, after the flesh, since we, and then it continues back to King James, We have known Christ, and now henceforth, he keeps cutting out all these words, we live no more after the flesh. Behold, all things are become new. So he's saying, put off the natural man. Don't live after these fleshly passions. You know, when you're you're driven by passions that are in congruence with the teachings of Jesus Christ, take them off, get rid of them, live by the light of Christ. And sometimes it has to take every hour, but whatever it takes, it's worth it get rid of our challenges physically, and focus on the spiritual strength that can come from our Savior. In verse 18, we read, "'All things are of God, "'who hath reconciled us to himself by Jesus Christ, "'and hath given to us the ministry of reconciliation.'" Now in verses 18 and 19, he mentions that word four different times. And in Greek, if you go back and look at reconciliation, it's the same word for atonement. But atonement's only mentioned one time, translated that way in in Romans chapter 5. And here in 2 Corinthians, he's also talking about it. Reconciliation, come with, think of the Latin roots there if you can, or it's the same as the at-one-ment. It's coming back, being reconciled with God. That's the at-one-ment, is when God can reconcile man through repentance and through the sacrifice of his son. I love the charge of chapter 5 verse 20. We are therefore Christ's ambassadors. This is the NIV translation. I love the image of being an ambassador. I've lived in foreign countries. I've been to embassies. I know how much it means to me to be by someone who represents me as a member of my nation, my country. And he says here that we are not only ambassadors of Christ, but it continues on in verse 20 in the NIV, as though God were making us an appeal through us. We implore you on Christ's behalf, be reconciled to God. Now they've already gone through the beginnings of repentance. The Corinthian saints are trying to change, and Paul is encouraging them, continue this process of change and repentance, of turning again to God. And he's saying, I am acting as an ambassador of Christ, and I'm pleading with you to come unto him. And now we turn to chapter 6, and the NIV reads, as God's co-workers, we urge you not to receive God's grace in vain. Now, here he is, Paul is you know the lord's ambassador. we just learned he also calls himself a servant of Christ, and now he's calling him a fellow worker and this idea of a fellow worker, an ambassador is not just for Paul it's not just for the apostles. This is for all of us who have been baptized who are disciples of Christ. These are beautiful titles, and every morning when we get up, may we put on a emotional and spiritual name tag that says, I am a representative of Christ. I am a co-worker with Christ. I want to build his kingdom. I just love this image that Paul is challenging the saints to apply. Verse three in the NIV reads, we put no stumbling block in anyone's path so that our ministry will not be discredited. I almost had to laugh at that. I thought, oh, Paul, you're your books have a lot of stumbling blocks. (laughs) Your letters are very hard for us to understand. And sometimes they do require uh, stepping over these stumbling blocks. Part of that I'm sure is the translation. And part of that is must be because I'm reading without the spirit. But I do feel that the apostles are not trying to put stumbling blocks. They're trying to put stairs. They're trying to lift us. They're trying to build bridges. They're trying to help not hinder us. Sometimes they feel like they're stumbling blocks, but the motives initially were accurate. And through the Spirit's sake, we can use these to be stepping stones instead of stumbling blocks, I hope. In chapter 6, verses 4 and 5, Paul then moves ahead to list nine of the hardships. He says, as servants of God, we commended ourselves in every way and in great endurance of troubles. That's the NIV translation. And then he starts listing them. Afflictions is King James. Troubles is the NIV. Or necessities is King James. And the NIV says hardships. Hardships distress and calamities, or stripes, or the beatings, imprisonments. And the tumults means another word for riots in the NIV. And he talks about his labors. These are just your work demands. And I hope you're following along in the scriptures. I'm going back and forth a lot between different translations. So I hope you're reading this in chapter 6, verses 4 and 5. The, the watching means sleeplessness. And the fasting, of course, is is hunger. It's not just going without food for the Lord. It's actually being hungry. After his list of nine challenges, he now goes and gives nine qualities of service. In verses six to seven, he talks about the need for pureness and knowledge, long-suffering, kindness, the Holy Ghost, love unfeigned, the word of truth, the power of God, and the armor of righteousness. These are like the spiritual gifts again that he mentioned in chapters 12 through 14 of his first letter. He's going back there and saying, I want you to keep repenting until you can put on this armor of righteousness. I want you to be strong in your faith. I want you to constantly be turning into God so that you can feel him directing you as a co-worker in the work. And then Paul gives a list of nine more things, but they're opposites. He says, honor with dishonor. Evil reports with good reports. Deceivers need to hear the truth. The unknown with the well-known. And he says, as dying, we live. Chastened, but not killed. Sorrowful and rejoicing. We are poor, yet making many rich. And having nothing and possessing all things. You know, as he's traveling across Europe, either on foot or on boats or whatever, he is going from stages as a wealthy young man in Tarsus and Jerusalem, he never experienced. And he's saying, I am making these sacrifices and living in this destitute financial position so that I can bring you the richness of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Verses 11 to 13 continue on in the BSB, and he says, Corinthians our hearts are open wide. And I assume this is Timothy and Paul. It is not our affection, but yours that is restrained. As a fair exchange, I ask you, as my children, open wide your hearts also. And remember, heart is also the mind. So it's a double meaning there, your heart and your mind to us. He's saying, I love you. I love you. If there's any restraint, it's on your side because I've chastened you, but realize I'm chastening you because of love. As the Lord taught Joseph Smith, reproving immediately at times is needed when moved upon by the Holy Ghost. But afterward, you show forth an increase of love. And that's exactly what Paul is doing here to the saints. Second Corinthians chapter six, verse 14 to 18 talks now about being unequally yoked a very puzzling section. There's four verses here. They seem to be a tangent again, and some of them contradict what he said before. They're very disruptive again. It interrupts the train of thought again. And also, there are eight words between verses 14 and 18 that are never used anywhere else in the New Testament. So, we assume that maybe these were later additions as well, or an editor, or somebody added stuff in here, because He's just been talking in his letter that we refer to as 1 Corinthians that if you're married to an unbeliever, try to make the marriage work because it's better fit for the children. But if if they leave, leave in peace and keep your heart pure. And if you're going to remarry, marry someone who's a believer. But here it says, be ye not unequally yoked together with unbelievers. So is he just referring to spend your time only with the saints? No, he's a missionary. He wants people to go out and, and spread the gospel with anyone. It's not this idea of the, of the Pharisee clean and unclean and don't go near a Gentile. And if you walk through Samaria, you're unclean. Or if you touch a Gentile's sleeve, you're unclean. That's, that's not the message of Christianity. Now, if he's talking about choose marriage partners who are sharing your faith, then I think he's consistent with what we understand from Christ's teachings and Paul's earlier writings but we don't know the question. We don't know what he's talking about. So it's a little disjointed here. I do like verse 16, though. Ye are the temple of the living God, and God hath said, I will dwell in them, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. He's quoting five Old Testament verses there. Leviticus 26, Jeremiah 33, Leviticus 37, Isaiah 52, Ezekiel 20. All these are footnotes there that repeat the same message. I will be my people. These are my people. If you follow me, I will be your God. If you do what I say, then we can both work together in building a better earth. We'll finish up the 2 Corinthians next week. But until then, I hope that you can prayerfully take time to ask the Lord to help you understand these verses that are puzzling and confusing. I also hope you can look at other translations especially the gift of the Joseph Smith translation that clarifies so much for us. I am so grateful for the restoration of the church that has not only opened up much joy in my life, but it helps me understand the scriptures better. In the name of Jesus Christ, amen.